Welcome to another episode of Adoption, The Making of Me. I'm Louise Brown. And I'm Sarah Reinhardt. Make sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Adoption, The Making of Me podcast. You can also find us at our website, adoptionthemakingofme.com. And please remember to subscribe, share, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Here we are for another chapter review. Today, we're reviewing chapter 10 of Journey of the Adopted Self by Betty Jean Lifton. This chapter is called The Call to Self, which is pretty self-explanatory, I think, deep, but it's all about searching for who you are as an adoptee. And it starts part two of the book. And it's, yeah, part two of the book. It says, you know, the word home is virtually impossible to translate into other tongues. It's not a concept, not a place, but a state of mind where self-definition starts. It is origins. We can see the search for home as a universal quest, but for the adopted person, it is also a literal one. It's interesting because I have said often, and I would sometimes attribute it to, oh, well, because my birth mother's water broke on the plane, you know, has always been my anecdote. I never, no place ever felt really home, really until I landed in New York City. Yeah. And also, I thought of you in this because of, I think, when you started having your home with Becker, then it was home. Yes. And I have a lot of that drawn to the, the feeling of home too, just recently being in my hometown thinking, is this home? Like, am I home here? Where is home? Floating home, you know, with Jack gone. And yes. And I I went to visit Becker and stay with him and his love this weekend. And (laughs) I felt home there. I was like, oh, wherever Becker is, is where I feel home. When he's here, I feel home. And that's (laughs) really the, uh, like, that's (laughs) the only time I do. She starts off at the beginning too, saying, I like this quote that goes on to your quote a little bit. There's a person, Jean Amory, who was a Holocaust survivor that said, one must have a home in order not to need a home. And if we believe as Amory did that exile is lost of biological and psychological identity, then adoptees have been in exile since their separation from their mother. Mm-hmm. It hits me like a punch. I guess. Yes. And then when she gets into the fear of knowing, I highlighted this from the moment they are separated from their birth mothers, all adoptees are consciously or unconsciously Mm -hmm. in search of someplace perched somewhere between conception and birth that could be called home. Yeah. Adoptee may have run away as a child and acted out. Yeah. Recurring theme. (laughs) (laughs) And then here I put this for me. Good girls don't search. Right. I thought of you with that. Me too, because I literally felt like I didn't even think about searching. I thought about it a few times, but then, you know, I'm like, no, can't do that because it would upset the apple cart. Yeah. Not about me. It's about everybody else. And then when Jack was born, I thought, oh, I'd like to search, but then you get busy with a newborn. So I'm kind of lucky my biological family found me because I'd probably still be doing the same thing. (laughs) Maybe not. Maybe I'd listen to your podcast. (laughs) I don't know where I'd be. Oh, she talked about kind of the disconnect of feelings, right? Like you tell yourself all the different reasons. Oh, ever you know, adoptees are medical history. I want to see if there's someone I look like, you know. But but oh, ne- yes. it's really not deeply connected, and it's it takes that sort of great awakening, right? I talked about it for years before again, just like that, and not having any real feelings attached to it. And then when Becker was born, it was like, all right, I'm gonna 
I'm going to yes. do the search. And I'm kind of going through that now, as you know, I've been searching a little bit on the biological dad side and I'm still a little bit guarded. Like, I don't want to get hurt. So I'm just looking for this. You know, I had a lot of thoughts going into reading this thing. I was like, whoa, everything sort of connects when you open up Betty Jean Lifton. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I almost put it off until right before we get together because, you know, it's heavy stuff. It is heavy stuff. And a lot of this, I feel like, especially since starting the podcast, I've, well, I will come to it. There's one thing she says in here about when you first cross the threshold, I may not be like addressing it correctly because I underline so many things, but then it's almost a hero's journey. You're just the courage, right? I mean, it's really, there was somebody in here, Glenn, I think was an adoptee who said, we give all this credit to sports figures and all these things that we idolize in the United States and different places. But really the courage to like find your roots and to go against your own internal system, like making your adoptive parents upset. Right. The threatening, Mm -hmm. it goes into all that about, about the threats of, well, it go you know, the peril, what that is, the journey is towards self is draining, overwhelming and lonely and fraught with perils. And then she lists all the perils. I I did too. Adoptees are in peril by losing their fantasies of the birth mother. Adoptees are in peril because they could lose their own magical self that was fused with the birth mother. They're in peril because they could break down the walls of the adoptive family system. Mm. Adoptees are in peril because they could lose their adoptive parents who were their only protectors and providers. That was my fear. Yeah. And then the final peril, adoptees are in peril because the search uncovers their psychic split beneath Mm -hmm. which lies the threat of fragmentation and disintegration, which they have spent a lifetime trying to ward off. I mean, I think we have some people in common that, that are way deep in there are these feelings and it's very dangerous for some people. It's dangerous. And it's, I feel on adoptee Twitter, we sort of learned that so many people have different times they're searching or how they're searching or what they're comfortable searching. But that one quote still sticks out from Rebecca Autumn's documentary. That psychologist said, all adoptees are searching, even as little babies and kids. The minute you know you're adopted and you look around the playground, could that be my mother? Could that be my mother? It's in your psyche. Mm-hmm. So you may never cross from that, but you're still searching. And yes, you're always wondering, but it bubbling it to the surface. Not everybody can do that. You know. I mean, how could you not wonder? <laughs> well, and then it goes into the Pinocchio syndrome, which I really identify with that a lot. The a wooden puppet who you know came to life only to be flooded with emotions he didn't know how to handle because he'd never been able to feel before. I definitely mm. feel that I lived a shut down, kind of avoidant attachment lifestyle. Protecting um, your heart. Mm-hmm. And then it says, I'll touch on this in a second. This loneliness, the hole inside that cannot be filled, connects them to the baby falling through a dark universe after separation from the mother, as well as to the forbidden potential true self that now begins stirring. That hole, you know, I joked recently with uh, Brenda, my stepsister, like, well, now that I've quit drinking, I have to fill that hole with something. So (laughs) I've chosen sugar, you know, but it's a joke, but it's real. It's real. Yeah, we all do it, this avoidance and patching this hole and the sand keeps going through it, sort of like the bucket without a bottom type of thing. The loneliness part, she also attributed that Argentinian psychiatrist or psychologist Mm -hmm. years ago really did a study, wasn't it? That they thought- Yes, 
that babies really were traumatized, not just from the primal wound, but knew who their birth mother was. And when they put people back together through trauma and then back with their families, they, you know, people who were not doing well in society all of a sudden did well again. Yes. And then Americans kind of copied that and found the same results. And a baby, not just as traumatized, but you know who that person is that makes you feel Sure. Home. I mean, you live yeah. with that sharing you know, it's your lifeblood for it's the voice nine you know? months and the voice and the smell and, you know, everything. I and think there was a woman in there who, who gave up her friend. She was adopted. She went with her friend to the nursery to find with her to see her baby. Do you remember? Yeah. And she was looking through all the babies in the nursery and said, Oh, that's my baby. I walked right over, knew exactly who her baby was without mm-hmm. even just right away. And she thought I'm going to look, that's when she decided yeah, to that, that stirred her. Cause this chapter talks about, you know, what that moment of awakening is Mm -hmm. like it takes that moment of awakening to Mm -hmm. there is a moment for a lot of people it's just a cut and dry I mean I remember when Jack was born and he'd cry and cry with everybody and they put him in my arms and he'd just be quiet and look at me and I remember thinking this is I mean just the deep thoughts of Mm -hmm. birth and childbirth that everyone has a baby goes through but then the adoptee component gets in there pretty deep yes well, a lot of this is anecdotes from from other adoptees. I think we've covered most of the bones of the chapter, would you say? Yeah. I mean, the anecdotes are great if anybody They they really are. I mean, this is we're hoping that people will pick up this book. Yeah, and uh, go along with and it. go in depth, you know, we kind of just touch on it, but it's a really really like I want to tell everybody's story in it like oh. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's big stuff, but I love our time together. And this, our next guest has a lot kind of that goes along with this. Yes. It really ties in. Yes. And, you know, people come to their search when they come to to their search, as you will find (laughs) out in this episode with our guest. I can't wait. I'll see you in a few. See you in a few. Bye. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Louise and I talked about it for months and we were intimidated until we heard about Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout is hands down the best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories like Apple, Spotify, Google, and more. Podcasting isn't hard. Believe me, if Louise and I could figure it out, anyone can. We got a mic, some headphones, parked ourselves in our closets, and that was it. Buzzsprout did the rest. You get a great looking podcast website and you can track all of your analytics to see how your podcast is doing. So if you follow the link in our show notes, it lets Buzzsprout know we sent you and you get a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan. And bonus, you help support our show. Hi, I'm just going to break in here. As a friend of the podcast and a fellow Patreon, I want to join Louise and Sarah in thanking everyone who has reached out. Frankly, I've been astounded at the number of listeners from across the world who have shared their unique stories with our podcasters. I believe in the healing power of stories. As a Patreon, I've found such pleasure in supporting the podcast And in seeing how adoptees find their people, I know how much Louise and Sarah are moved by each Patreon support. Their immediate goal is to be able to air the podcast weekly rather than bi-weekly. 
Eventually, they would like to advocate for more effective ways of adopting children. If you would like to support this important work, either once or in an ongoing way, simply go to patreon.com, then in the search bar, type adoption colon the making of me. Thank you all. It's in your own way for bringing us together. And now let's rejoin our hosts. Hello, here we are. Really happy to be introducing our next guest. He had listened to our podcast and then reached out to us and his story was really interesting. And he's also an author. So let me introduce Ed DeGange. Hi, Ed. Good morning. It's nice to be here with both of you. We're so excited. Nice to have you. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. So tell us just a bit, give us your adoption story. We'll probably you know, break in and ask some questions, but just out the gate, tell us your adoption story. Sure. I think I've actually got a rather unusual adoption story in that I, you know, I'm now approaching, well, I'm 73 and a half and I was adopted at birth. I was brought home by my adoptive parents at a day old and my adoption was privately arranged. So this goes back to the baby scoop era where people were kind of sent off and hidden and and then returned home and the babies taken from them. This was a very different story in that my mother was able to, to manage the pregnancy, manage the adoption herself and what she wanted for me, for her child. And the benefit that was ultimately left with me was documentation of my adoption, which my adoptive parents held on to. The unusual part from their side is I have no recollection at any age of them ever having discussed adoption with me. And, you know, my wife tells me that she and my mother had a conversation at one point and my mother said, oh, sure. I used to tell him because the doctor instructed us, hold your baby, cuddle them and tell them that you are my wonderful adopted baby. And my mother apparently did that until I was two years old and had no understanding of what she was saying. And then stopped. So you didn't know you were adopted? No, I I had no conversation with my parents to to advise me of that. There probably a small handful or a couple of things that occurred that that made me curious. One, when I was about seven years old, my family went to Europe and we were in France and went to an orphanage there. And I was kind of curious about what we were doing there. And my mother and father said, wouldn't you like a little sister? And I was, yeah, I thought I was having a pretty good time as a, as an only kid. And I, yeah, number one, I really wasn't that interested in having a little (laughs) sister. And, and number two, I was confused about why don't you just make one for me? And Uh, and and how old were you? How old were you at this point? I was seven years old. Oh, okay. It was the summer of, you have. After I turned seven, I remember coming back to second grade when we came back. Another one was just kind of an awkward statement my mother made one day as I was about to go out. And she said, somebody may tell you that you're not ours, but you are, and it doesn't matter. And I thought that was a very confusing thing, and I didn't understand it. But I went out and I played, and nobody said anything to me. I'm guessing sometime around the time I was 10 years old, maybe, my parents had a a fireproof box that they kept documents in. And, you know, some kids go and look in the liquor cabinet. I went and I looked at the fireproof box and, (laughs) and yeah, I pulled out my father's resumes. I found old high school diplomas for my parents. And there was an envelope in there with my mother's name on it. And I opened it up and there was a document in there. It was actually my adoption decree. 
there were two documents, the adoption decree and something that said certificate of birth by adoption. And this was in New York State where records back then were sealed. They were sealed until very recently. Right. Last and year, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So there were no secrets after that. I knew exactly, you know, where I stood. I was listed as Mel Narowski, <laughs> which was my turned out to be my birth mother's name. And you know, and that decree had four names on it. It had both of my adoptive parents. It had their attorney, who for some reason I whose name I for some reason recognized. And it had a woman's name that I did not recognize. But, you know, given the nature of the document, I assumed, okay, that, that's got to be your birth mother. And how, how did you feel about that? Like, how, how did that make you feel? You know, I don't honestly remember, Louise. It was nothing that was terribly shocking. I had a great childhood. But did you, had, you didn't at that point know you were adopted. So you were 10, you find this box, you see that paper, and now suddenly you're like, oh, I was adopted. Yeah, it's it and made all that, the things made, made that, that awkward mother... statement yes, fall into yes. place and made the trip to the orphanage fall into place. But my thought process was my parents had never, never said anything. And if they weren't saying anything, I guess it was something we don't talk about. So I yeah. never brought it up with them. And, you know, my dad died when he was, this is back in 1976, yeah. my adoptive mother in 1987. There was never a word spoken in all that time. Wow. And you and never told them that you found the documents. No, no. And you know, I, I knew it. And as I said, I, I had a pretty idyllic childhood. You know, my adoptive parents, I think, loved me and treated me as well as any, you know, any natural set of parents could have. And Did you ever really feel any kind of, I don't know, sort of you were different or didn't that they weren't DNA matches. You didn't feel any of that or. Well, you know, it's, it's other than I was six feet tall and they were both five foot two. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so there were some, there were some apparent differences. And interestingly, you know, my, my mother came from a, a family with some, she had a brother who was six foot four. And I used to ask about, well, you know, how come you're so short and I'm so tall? And, you know, this is probably a part where, you know, I had already known that I was adopted, but I was still asking about, you know, seeing what they might say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how do I fit into the family? And, you know, she's, well, you know, Uncle Connie was tall. My father was tall. And, you know, and I, it just, yeah, it just didn't make a difference to me. Really? And you didn't later feel any kind of anything like betrayal (laughs) for not being told or? No, there was never any negative feelings there. You know, I would tell you that periodically, but it was infrequent. I would think, gee, who could my mother be? Yeah. And it was more of, you know, why would somebody give up somebody like me? And, and you know, my, my thought process through that whole thing was, you know, was my mother must have been a high school girl, stayed out late one night, and a couple of months later found out she had a problem. Yeah. And I could tell you, I virtually never thought about who my father might be. Hmm. So, you know, there's, so there were those occasional thoughts and if I probably never thought about it more than once a year or so, if that. I have to say when, when I was young, I never thought about who my father might be either. It was always my mother. I hear that frequently. Yeah. It's, it's most people are very concerned with their mothers and the fathers are kind of a, they're they're secondary in it. (laughs) I had curiosity about both. Yeah. And my relationship with my mother and my father was rather different, I think. You know, my mother just, I think, instinctively mothered and, you know, and just 
made me feel good. My father was a, a very high expectations kind of person. And, you know, and there was a, yeah, there's a good stretch where I felt like, gee, I'm really disappointing him. And he, you know, he was never, there's no cruelty or anything, but, you know, it's always, yeah, kind of not measuring up. And, you know, at, as I got older, you know, we, I wouldn't say reconciled because there's nothing to really reconcile, but we, we got onto a much better basis the older I got. I wonder how many fathers actually put that out on their kids, I think about these things <laughs> like yeah you know I you don't gave realize that's, the influence i've given that a lot of thought i think you know we talk a lot about the impact of of adoption on the mothers mm-hmm. and i think there's a yeah there's a big impact on an adoptive father particularly because i think something is going on there in his mind that you know either i couldn't make a baby or you know or i had this good situation, but now I've got to welcome a baby into my family. I don't know. I don't know. I, I just really, I'm not I wish, capable I wish of you analyzing talk, that. I wish you could talk to them about it. And how did you want to find your birth mother and tell us this story? Yeah. When you yeah. finally decided, okay, I'm mm-hmm. adopted. and Yeah. It took and, a yeah. whole long time. I really didn't go into it until I was approaching my 70th birthday. Wow. <laughs> yeah, That's why your story is so unique. It's very interesting. It is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were up in New Jersey. My parents, both of my adoptive parents were long deceased. My wife's parents had lived in New Jersey but we had brought them down here to North Carolina just, you know, so my wife could be closer and if they needed anything, you know, she'd be able to to help with that. And as it turned out, both of them arrived in compromised health. And several months later, her mom passed away during the summer. And six months later, her dad passed away. Hmm. And we took their remains back to New Jersey. And we were up there for an, for an internment. And we went to a nearby cemetery where my adoptive mother's family was, by and large, buried. And we were standing over the grave of my maternal, on the adoptive side, grandparents. And I just, yeah, I had this feeling like, you know, this wouldn't it be interesting to know more about where they came from? I think that whole thing was triggered by by three things. Number one, I had been reading a book or I had read it. And I think I was in my third reading of a book called The Lost. And it was a book by Daniel Mendelssohn, who who went on a search for what happened to six of his relatives who perished in the Holocaust. Yes. And Mendelssohn got this you know, big book advance and managed to travel over the whole world, chasing down people who had come from their hometown and stuff, and ultimately found out precisely what happened to them and, and where it happened. So I was intrigued by that because that was almost a mystery story, but it was real interesting. The other parts where, you know, ancestry was out there advertising like crazy, push a button, find everything you ever wanted to know about your family, or take a DNA test and we'll, you know, we'll hook you up with everybody. And then the third part was all that those TV shows were out there suddenly where, you know, they were reuniting Reuniting family and it just made me curious. So I went to our local... Yes. Did, did you still have the papers, by the way? What happened to those papers when your parents died? When my parents died, that metal box with all the documents came to us. Mm. And I had not been in that envelope of my mother's in a very long time. I went to the library when we got back from New Jersey, got on Ancestry and started typing in my, you know, my adoptive mother's family's information. 
And suddenly I'm getting back a lot of things. And Wait, your adoptive mother, your bio mother? My adoptive at that point. Oh, you I weren't was, interested in your bio mother at that point? Well, that's what triggered it. Okay. Because yeah. like, you know? yeah, we can find out all the history about our <laughs> adopted family, but it really has nothing to do with us. <laughs> well, you know, they, they'd come from Ukraine and I thought, okay, this is really interesting. And yeah, just history wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I put in a little bit of information, got you know, these screenfuls back to me. And I sat there for a moment. And I said, if it's really this easy, I said, let me go back. Let me get into that metal box. Let me open the envelope, get out the document. And let's see what happens. So I literally did that. I got up from the computer at the library, drove the 10 minutes home and you know, fished out that envelope and took out the document, wrote down the name of Genevieve Irene Norowski. And went back to the library, got onto Ancestry again, and typed it in. I sat there with my finger over the enter button saying, do I really want to do this? Because I wasn't sure what it is that I'm going to find. There's, yeah, there's nothing scary about it, but I did. And you're just like with my adoptive family, screenfuls of information, census records. And the one I chose to, to look at first was an immigration document dated nine months after I was born, traveling from Miami, Florida to Rio de Janeiro. And I looked at it and and I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm just looking at the title of the document, thinking, what could my mother have been doing going to Rio de Janeiro? And for some crazy reason, I think, okay, she's a Eastern European person. I think she's a spy. (laughs) <laughs> and, and so I finally pressed on the button that, yeah, the thing was written in Portuguese. What year was this when she went to Rio? She went there in March of 1949. Oh. I was born in May of 1948. But, you know, so it gave her name. It gave her a street address, which was a 15-minute bus ride from where I grew up. Wow. It gave her age. She was 23 when I was born is what I deduced. So... That kind of threw out the, you know, the high school girl who got into trouble. And it listed her occupation as an artista. Okay, now I'm wondering what's an artista, but the real, <laughs> yeah, the real earth shaker was was her picture was there, it was a passport picture. And I'm kind of looking around like, you know, who's watching this? And yeah, there were people there, nobody would care except for me. Yeah, I brought it home to my wife and I showed her, I said, Do you want to see a picture of my mother? And she said, we got pictures of your mother all around the house. I think I've I've seen her. I said, no, this is my birth mother. And that's kind of where this whole thing started and really built momentum. Wow. I wish you had done it earlier, but it's an interesting way how you got to it. Yeah. The investigation process. I'm a believer in things happen for a reason. Yeah. And if it was meant to happen in 2017 when it did, that's the case. The unfortunate part is my birth Mm -hmm. mom died in 2014. I didn't miss by much. And you know, and really, uh, we could talk through it some more. But I, the only real strong feeling I had is I wanted to tell her you did a good thing. You know, yeah, it worked out for the best. And I'm a believer that she probably knows that. She probably knew it all along. What else did you find out? Because you also found your biological dad's side. Well, I think the interesting thing on my mother's side, just to yep. step back, is you know, didn't know what kind of an artista she was. <laughs> I went back to the library and looked some more and found her marriage license from 1955. So this is seven years after I was born. And she married a man by the name of Ted Meza. And her 
license listed her name as Genevieve Narowski Norris. And you know, I didn't recognize Norris and it listed them both as performers. So it started to you know, kind of narrow down a little bit, but I got onto Google and tried Meza and didn't, I, actually I did, I tried Meza and what I got back was she and her husband had been performers in the big ice shows of the 1940s and 1950s. Ted actually was 20 years older than she was. So he had been- And he had still performing? In, Good for him. No, but by the in, end of In the all 60s, ways. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so some. yeah, I found a blog you know, of an antique dealer who had bought a number of items they had produced. When they stopped skating, they went into- the business of producing props for the big ice shows. They produced props for the Miss America contest. And they reportedly produced the, the props for the first Broadway production of Hello, Dolly. So, you know, so they were were quite accomplished with what they did. Genevieve had gone to a New York city high school, Washington Irving, which was an all women's Mm -hmm. school devoted to the arts. I, I have a feeling too, back in that, you're talking about the years that it was, you know, for her to have a baby during that time would have totally disrupted her income stream to be an independent person in that era. So, so I'm sure it was a, because she, she was left, 23. But she left you some breadcrumbs. So it sounds oh, like she wasn't, breadcrumbs. it doesn't sound mm-hmm. like she was opposed to being found later in life. Well, you know, all. I don't know about that. I don't know. The only breadcrumb was that adoption decree. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think, something that my adoptive mother left me. Yeah, she had told my wife, well, you know, if Edward ever wants to go and hunt, he'll be able to. And never said there's a document there with a name on it. So she was having these conversations with your wife, but not with you? She had one with my wife. <laughs> and they, she, but, but again, my wife asked more questions than I do. Yeah, yeah, she's much more inquisitive. And I your think wife got yeah. in there like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, my mother actually brought it up just out of the blue. And my wife, I, you know, sort of said, does he know that you, you know, does he know? And she said, well, of course he knows. I told him for two years. Oh. And yeah, but they, <laughs> they weren't my memorable two years. But yeah, Genevieve left home at the age of 17. She grew up in New York City or just in one of the outlying yeah. boroughs, got on a train one day. And this, this is not a random act, but she always had a an aspiration to be a professional ice skater in, in the ice shows. Got on a train, traveled alone from New York City to Vancouver, British Columbia, and, you know, toured across the United States and into Mexico for the next five years. Until yeah, it's she interesting. Came, came back pregnant. But we met some people down in Georgia, another blogger, who when I knew that my mother's name, and I put that in as Genevieve Norris Ice Skater, a blog showed up with all sorts of pictures of hers, her first professional contract, her high wow. school diploma. And, you know, and I tried to get in touch with them and I, I did get the woman. She called me back and I said, I'm exploring possible family relationship. And she said, I'd love to talk to you. I've still got these materials, but I'm busy. I'll call you back. And after a week of waiting, when she didn't call back, I, you know, I sent a message saying, what you've got is my mother, please call me. And within five minutes, she called and she said, you need to come here right now. And my wife and I traveled and she had a big carton of photographs and picture albums. And, and who was she? She was, you know, she was a picker. She was a, in the antiques business. She had oh, been at an auction. And, 
not knowing who my mother was, just saw a glamorous woman from a glamorous era. And she thought it was interesting. You know, she paid for this box of stuff. Oh, that's and, so crazy. And happily, she still had it by the time that, yeah, that I met her. And we did travel to Georgia. And, you yeah, know, we went down there. We met with she and her husband. And they pushed this box across the table and said, we knew you'd show up one day. You know, this is all yours. We've been holding it for you. Oh, that's so nice. Oh, it was. It was a wonderful thing. There have been so many generous people along this journey. And that's now, such have- a gift to get. I mean, Oh, wow. it was an absolute gift. But, you Do you know, know if she had any other kids, your your mom? Yeah, she did. She had she two did. children from the marriage. So you have siblings. Uh, I have a sibling. One of them is no longer alive. Her first son was born in 1956, and and she skated up to that point and then, then retired. And he was an interesting story because he took a lot of tracking down, but he was down in Georgia where, you know, where they had all lived. And and I sent one letter again. I'm pursuing a possible family relationship. Could you get in touch with me? And it got returned on a deliverable. And there were three or four of those. And finally, from that blog that I mentioned from the from the picker down in Georgia, I found a comment from somebody who said, I grew up with, you know, with Genevieve and her husband or his neighbors, and I was best friends with their son. Wow. So and I reached that's out on to the him. It was on the blog. blog. Yes, it's on her blog. So I reached out to him, and he got back in touch with me, and he explained to me that this was the first time that I understood my mother was no longer alive. Mm. And he said I I sang at her memorial service, and he then told me that about a year later, her son, my half brother, had been in a calamitous fire, oh. and was still in a physical and rehab facility. And as it turned out between hospital and rehab, he had been out of circulation for the better part of 30 months. Mm. So he said, I will have Ted call you. And Ted didn't call. (laughs) So I I got back in touch with this person. He said, here's his phone number, call him. And we had a very brief conversation. He said, now explain to me, what kind of kin are we? (laughs) And yeah, maybe underestimating you know, what kind of a message this is. I said, you and I are half brothers. You know, we have the same mom, you have a different father. His response was, I'm not sure how that could be, but I've got to go now because I'm going to take my wife for a walk. And as it turned out, he had married a woman he met in rehab and she was also still there. He said, but I'll call you back soon. And this was another one that went on for weeks before I heard from him again. And he did call back. Yeah, yeah. And we had kind of the same conversation again. Yeah, you know. Well, did you tell him the circumstances of where you were born and and all that to kind of? Yeah, and that didn't. It was years before he was born. (laughs) It did. Well, that's that's what I tried to explain to him. I said he didn't want to know. This this has nothing to do with you. This has nothing to do with your dad. I said, yeah, but yeah, same thing. I don't understand what kind of kin we are. Hmm. And yeah, so we eventually arranged to go back down to Georgia, where he lived. to visit with him. And he was very open to the visit. And we went out to Golden Corral because I thought that was a great place to have an awkward conversation. You know, if it got too awkward, I could go to the, you know, to the chocolate waterfall and we could go to the salad bar. And we had a nice, you know, kind of generic conversation. We had dinner on the way back in the car, you know, he was sitting in the back seat and he said, now Cheryl and Cheryl is his wife. Cheryl wants to know what kind of kin we are. Oh my gosh. 
He just couldn't so, hear that his mom had, you know, a baby. Yeah, so one more time, you know, so he said, I just don't know how that can be. He said, my, he said, my mama and my daddy were always together. But we got back to his apartment. He went back into one of the rooms and he came out with a big roll of posters. Like, wow, you know, cool. The size, the size of what you would see in a, in a movie lobby, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. And they were all from Holiday on Ice. And he said, wow. well, my, you know, he said their names are right here. And, you know, the, it listed all the performers and he went down the 1946 one and there's his father, Ted Meza, and they're all alphabetical. So he went down looking for Genevieve Norris and Genevieve wasn't there. I said, Ted, they were not together. <laughs> and he's not listening. He shook his head. He went to the 1946 poster. We did that again. I really had a hard time. Mm -hmm. Yes. So when we got to the end of 1946, I said, Ted, in 1947, I said, yeah, I'm guessing your your father was still with Holiday on Ice. Our mother was in San Francisco with Ice Follies. And I was conceived in August of 1947. And he very deliberately, you know, rolled up the 46 poster, opened up 47. And it was the same story again. And I said it one more time. And without saying anything, he re-rolled all the posters, took them back to where he got them and came out with a big photo album. And as it turned out, my mother was meticulous in documenting where she had been, dating them, who she was with. And it was an an album full of these little black and white brownie snapshots, all in chronological order, starting in 1942. Okay. and he's flipping pages. They're really interesting. I was just salivating looking at all of this. And we got to 1946. And you know, and I recognized where she had been because I'd done a lot of research by then. And I, before he flipped the page, like, I said, I said, Ted, I said, you know, I said one more time. I said, our mother was in San Francisco in August of 1947. And I didn't know what was going to be on that next page. But he flipped the page. And again, this is an album full of black and white snapshots in the middle. I don't know if you can see this. Mm -hmm. Okay. In the middle is the only color photo that was in the entire album. And it's listed as August 1947, San Francisco, California. So then he was convinced. Did he believe you then? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Ted's got some, some stuff. So <laughs> he folded up the album at that point, put it away, came back, said, would you like a beer? And, you know, we had, yeah, we, we had a nice, nice conversation. Cup. at that Do you point. like a beer? At that point, yeah, toward the end of the evening, my wife and I were going to go back to the hotel. I brought a photocopy of the adoption decree. And I said, Ted, I said, I want you to see this. I said, this is my adoption decree. Said it's got my adoptive parents' names on it. It's got their attorney on it. And I said, I'm pretty sure this is our mother. And she had a very distinctive handwriting. There was no doubt. There was no doubt at all. And, and he looked at it and you could tell it. That's where it registered. But he, it he he folded it back up and he handed it to me. And I said, this really has no value other than to me and possibly to you. If you want to keep that, it's fine. So we left him in Georgia late that week. He called up again. And you know, we were talking a lot at that point. And he said, well, I went back down to the rehab facility and showed that paper you gave me to so-and-so, who was the administrator, I think, and somebody he trusted. I said, okay. And there was silence. I said, well, what did he say? He said, well, he asked me if that signature was mama's. 
<laughs> and there was silence again. And I said, what did you say? And he paused. He said, well, I told him that's my mom's signature. What did he say? Okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like that. He said, he said, Ted, he said, if that's your mama's signature, it looks like you've got yourself a brother. Finally. <laughs> and from that day on, I mean, there's been no question about it. And his, he said, I guess just every woman has a secret. Uh, he had a hard time with that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what it was. He just yeah. could not picture his sainted mother Sex having had a life. child. Because he kept on <laughs> saying that, you know, he said, my mama would have told me. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't think so. Yeah, different times. Yeah, they different were very times. different times. Yeah. And then and you had another sibling, but was no longer. Yeah, he had died under rather unfortunate circumstances. And yes, yeah, so he was no longer in the picture. Thankfully, you know, from what I understand from other people and even from my brother, Ted, you know, had he been in the picture, this may have been a much more difficult search mm. and reunion. Yeah, was, he was just kind of a difficult character. And but what about, I, so your birth father, did you find anything out? Yeah, as I said, you know, I, I had never given any thought to who my birth father may have been. And before I began the search for my mother, again, you know, based mostly on Ancestry.com ads, I sent a saliva sample into Ancestry, really just wanting to know what my ethnicity was, not even thinking that it might, you know, might reveal anybody. And with their Christmas rush back then, it, it took forever to get it back. I kept on getting emails that, you know, well, your sample's getting closer to the top. We're going to be with you soon. And it was probably in June of that year that I finally got it back. Wow. And, and my first thing that I looked for was the pie chart because I wanted to know what the ethnicity was. And a lot of Eastern European, which didn't surprise me because I... I related or felt I felt close to my Eastern European relatives, once from Ukraine. There was about a third, which was was Ashkenazi Jew. Mm. And I sort of giggled there because in high school, I had a girlfriend whose mother kept on saying, you're such a nice boy. It's a shame you're not Jewish. <laughs> and my first thought was, I wonder if a third would have been enough. Yeah. But yeah. Was then, Genevieve Jewish? No, she was Polish. They were Roman okay. Catholic. They were devout Roman Catholic. And I think that played a great deal with the decision she made. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, regarding my adoption. For sure. And, you know, but then there you get the list of your, you know, your 2000 closest cousins. Yeah. And at the top, you know, <laughs> there was somebody identified as first cousin, close relative. Which could mean half sibling. Yeah. And it's, you know, and it was a name I didn't recognize. And by then I was. I was very comfortable that I knew all the names on Genevieve's side. So I said, well, this is really pretty interesting. I said, this could be on my father's side. And if he's my first cousin, not totally understanding ancestry's nomenclature at that point, I said, I bet he could tell me who my father is. (laughs) And, you know, contrary to so many others who have the issue of sending a message and getting nothing back, I sent an ancestry message with 10 minutes, 10 minutes, got an answer back from the, from the person. And yeah, and he was elated. He said, I would love to help you. This is really interesting. And as it turned out, he was a Mormon. And you know, Mormons devote lots yes. of time to their, to their ancestries and yep. genealogy. And he said, well, go look at my family tree. And I looked and I mean, it was immense. But what I really noticed was, you know, his father had no siblings. Hmm. But his mother had six sisters and one brother. 
I said, okay. I said, if this man who I'm corresponding with is my cousin, it's got to be that brother. It's the only, that's his only uncle. And yes, I wrote back and I said, I think your uncle Harris is my father. And here's why I think that. And yeah, and he probably 10 minutes later, I got another message back and he said, you know, your logic makes total sense. He said, Uncle Harris was kind of a unique person. And I'll try to tell you more. And another 10 minutes later, I got another message back. He said, I don't think Uncle Harris is your father. He said, you know, number one, Uncle Harris never left Texas. And you're sure you were conceived in San Francisco. Also, you're 25% Jewish. Uncle Harris has no Jewish blood, he said. But I would point out to you that I am 25% Jewish. Uh (laughs) And and my father never left San Francisco. Uh Uh-huh. So it was just bingo. There's my brother. (laughs) There's my paternal half-brother. Well, that's a sure different story than your maternal (laughs) half-brother. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this this was quick understanding (laughs) and acknowledgement. (laughs) And yeah, it was kind of poignant because he, you know, he told me, he said, yeah, he said, I don't know who your adoptive parents were. He said, but I can tell you, you were better off with them than you would have been with my father as your father. And yeah, and he went on with some detail. His dad was kind of a impulsive, impulsive person at the time I was conceived. He was between his second and third of five wives. Yeah. So when (laughs) I wonder how your how your biological mom hooked up with him. Well, as it turned out, he was in the insurance business and had close connections with Ice Follies. Ah. You know, every year Ice Follies would get out to San Francisco in June and they would spend the summer there. They would rehearse their coming season show in the morning. Every night they would perform their their current season show for paying audiences. And I'm sure it was just, yeah, he saw a good looking woman and and yeah, if he had five wives, he must have had some level of charm. I was just gonna say, yeah. <laughs> So, so, so he dazzled her. Yeah. Yeah. He dazzled her. It was Those interesting. slick insurance agents. <laughs> there, I was selling there, something. Yeah, he's, yeah. He was selling. Okay. But his, his third wife, my half brother's mother at first was very concerned when he told her about this new development. And then she put the dates together and said, we, you know, we weren't together at that point. So I guess it's okay. It's okay. You exist. <laughs> yeah. But about a year or so later, we went out to visit with my brother just to meet him. And, and I have the strongest family resemblance to, to him than I do on the maternal side. And he said, if you don't mind, my mother would like to meet you. Mm. So she was 97, I think, at that point. She's still alive. She's 100 years old now. Wow. And she was bright and alert. She had her makeup on. And, you know, she, we came in and my son was with us. So she greeted my son. She greeted my wife and then told her son, take the two of them, show them the house. I want to talk to him. And it was kind of <laughs> sit down. I have things to tell you about your father. And, you know, and it was a very generous thing, I think, because she just felt I had a right to know whatever she could tell me about him. She tried to make it as positive as possible. <laughs> but, you know, basically said, yeah, he had abandoned her and abandoned his son. And, and she was not very sympathetic about that. You know, she would say that he announced after they were married that Saturdays are mine. She said, I'm sure he went out catting on Saturdays. He always set the schedule. She said, 
But then she said, but I blame it all on his mother. And she said she was a little mean person. And, you know, so for the little bit that she was able to give me, I thought it was a nice thing. I think it was it was great that she wanted to share what she knew. So that no other siblings from him? No, he was an only child. Well, and, but I mean, on ancestry, that, that, there were, that you know, no, right, but your father only fathered you and him. I, nobody that's, else. That's correct. And I don't honestly, I don't honestly believe he even knew I existed. Right. It doesn't I sound like yeah, it was a summer not. romance. Genevieve would not have looked back and been in touch with him. And and he didn't know she was long gone by the time she realized that she was pregnant. And she but could it was probably a, see who he was too. I'm sure he was. Oh yeah, let yeah. It, let it be known who he was. <laughs> yeah, that's be, my brother said. You know, if he ever found out that she was pregnant, he would have done everything possible to deny it and to separate himself from the situation. So, so are you still in touch with both of your brothers? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, and, and you grew up as an only child, right? I did. I yeah. did. So, you know, and it's in its own way, you know, I think I've brought family on my paternal side. And I think, you know, my brother, Ted, who's the, the maternal half brother, really after his after our mother passed away, was left pretty much on his own. You know, he's got his wife who's in the nursing facility. And, you know, sadly, I'm not sure she'll ever come out of there. She had had a, mm. a fairly severe stroke and he there just aren't the resources to get her out of there and care appropriately someplace else. Mm. So, you know, I think I was uh, kind of dropped out of the sky to, to be a part support of Ted's system. life. Yeah. 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 yeah you know, we talked to his great. wife was a lovely person. We, you know, when we go there, we visit with her when we, you know, we try to call periodically and just recently had a very nice conversation with her. That's great. So, Thank you so much, Ed. I just love your story. And for our listeners, would you please tell the name of your book so that if anybody wants to pop on Amazon and get it? Yeah, this whole journey turned into a book and there was never a book intended. I never expected a story, honestly. I love love that you've done this uh, later in life. It's really neat and have these brothers later in life and yeah, Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a wonderful trip. It's been a great thing and it's, you know, the two brothers could not be any more different than one another. And, <laughs> Sounds like, and, like yeah. <laughs> and honestly, I could not be more different than either one of them, but it's, it's been a great, I'm thing. sure there are some similarities though, oh, just because are, of, sure. you know, DNA is definitely a giant factor here. So, but if you want the discussion of nature versus nurture, I think nurture <laughs> won out here. In your nurture. case, that's not the case yes. for everybody. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, and I should, yeah, it's not the case for everybody. And again, I think probably as a disclaimer, my search is very different than most people's because I, I was gifted number one with the identity of my birth mother and number two by her career. There was a chronology and a yes, you know, that's so she could great. Be followed, she could be identified and where she was and when she was. I mean, that's you know, just a be, gift. Yeah. Yeah, it was. You'll have to send us a picture of her. Please do. I'll do so that. Yeah. So the book I wrote is called The Gift Best Given. It's like a that. memoir and it interweaves two stories. It interweaves the story of my search and it interweaves Genevieve's travels from the time she left home at 17 to the time she returned to New York, known to nobody other than her oldest sister and her sister's husband. Oh. To you know, to pretty much manage the pregnancy on her own, and then to give birth and and place me for adoption without anyone ever having known. 
It's a really nice tribute and homage to her that even though you didn't meet her, it's neat that you've written a book about her journey. Louisa, that's that's interesting. When I wrote, my first thought was, I'm just telling a story. Mm -hmm. And the more I wrote, the more I investigated and the more I understood, you know, it was, it really is. It was, it it became a tribute to her because she, yeah, she was a very special person that way. Birth mothers could use a little of that too, you know, a little. <laughs> but she deserved it. And that's, yeah, that's why I would love to have seen her and love to have met her because I, you know, she, she did a good thing given the circumstances at the time. Oh yeah. She did a good thing. And we recently made contact with the mother-in-law of the brother who is no longer with us. And, you know, and she told me, she said, I, I don't know how it all worked out. She said, but you did much better than those two boys. And again, I just think it was, you know, it was the nurture side, you know, so I'm very, very grateful for it. But the book is available through any bookstore on order. It can be Amazon, I'm sure. Yes. Amazon for sure. Yeah. Both in print copy and an ebook. And and I do have a website. It's diganji, D-I-G-A-N-G-I author.com. And the book can be ordered there. I'm happy to autograph it and personalize it and and send it out. And it's people love it when they read, they just, they've enjoyed the story. All right. Well, thank thank you you so much, Ed. It was a delight having you. Yeah. Thank the both of you. I really appreciate, I appreciate what you're doing with the show. Thank you. You you bring, you know, you bring levity to a very serious situation. And I, I think that's needed. That's a great thing. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You bet. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. Bye, Ed. Bye-bye. Wow, oh, Ed. <laughs> I know what a tale he has, right? I know, really, really crazy. And the things that you find out when you start down the rabbit hole of reunion and search. I mean, search, obviously not reunion, yes. but search. And at his late age. I mean, yes. going forward at that age and then finding the brother. And I know, really and just, just. And he's got such humor and. And good storytelling, but I'm I'm curious to read his book because he's yes, a good storyteller. He really is. Well, I love this. So <laughs> what do we say? <laughs> Another great episode. See you next time. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening today. And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at the Making of Me podcast. And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon the making of me. Bye. See you next time. Bye.